Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Four, three, two, one. I told you before to be careful where you put your legs. I was only trying to be helpful. I could help myself. What are you waiting for? Come on. Come on. What are you waiting for? Come on! Come on! For seven decades, Michael Keane has been among the world's most renowned and recognisable actors. It was just what I needed. A one-inch god with a two-inch penis. The star of classics like Zulu, The Man Who Will Be King, and The Cider House Rules. It's a miracle no one was killed. But also films that brought his career to the brink of complete implosion. I made a mistake. Somehow, he has always found a way back. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. In this epic podcast series, we will watch and review every Michael Caine movie, from the greatest hits... You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! ...to the incredible misses. You failed to maintain your women, son. And take a deep dive into the life and work of one of the world's most recognisable film stars. His name is Michael Caine, and no one will forget his name. To understand how he is made... The Mark of Cain. Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. For God's sake, come in! Hello and welcome to the Mark of Cain podcast, our ongoing bog snorkel through the film career of Michael Cain, focusing on a film in every episode in an attempt to get to the bottom of the appeal of a screen legend whose CV, while containing a string of classics, also contains enough poison to kill off the careers of a dozen other actors. I'm Michael Foley, and I'm joined as always by Stephen Black, the Mallow News Twitter feed. Like a little startup factory of satire and amusing diversions. Jeez, amusing diversions. I feel like I'm starting to sound like one of those old being for the benefit of Mr. Kite type Victorian posters for upcoming amusements. Uh, how are you doing? Ech, I'm, I'm alive. I guess that's about as much as I can uh, ask for <laughs> at this stage. Are you putting any of that kind of sort of um, lag and mood down to the down to the movie we're about to talk about, or is it? Are you still post Alfie? I'm kind of post Alfie. All right, yeah. It's uh, this is. I was I was hoping for a bit of an all. I was hoping for my boosh to be well amused uh, on the wrong box, and unfortunately, it was not amused. It wasn't even slightly amused. It was amuselesh. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't even boosh. So we're coming off the mixed bag. That was Alfie, the towering success that was Alfie, even though it was in a completely repulsive movie, um, to something entirely different now for Michael Caine. So a couple of months after Alfie came out in March 1966, his summer offering in May of 1966 was a film called The Wrong Box. In the name of the Queen. That's one out of the way. You heard me, man. Fire! And that's yet another. Pray, what is going on? What's going on? Murder and mayhem is going on in the wrong box. It started here, when a room full of young hopefuls gathered to hear about the tontine. And pray, what is a tontine? A tontine is, in point of fact, a lottery. A lottery, plain and simple, in which the man who lives longest wins. Of 20 beneficiaries, only two brothers remain alive. Ah! 
but which one of them will stay alive to collect the tontine, now worth a hundred thousand pounds. Now this is to me, it's a it's a deeply odd film. It's a sixties comedy farce, a British comedy farce based on a Robert Louis Stevenson novel. Um, I'm not quite sure this was exactly what we were all crying out for in the summer of 66, was it? I don't think anyone is ever going to be crying out for a movie like this ever. I fucking hate farces at the best of times. This is <laughs> really didn't change, do anything to change my mind. I'm a traditionalist when it comes to comedies. Um, I'm a meeting to it. I, I like my comedies to be funny. Uh, unfortunately, enough. this, 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 doesn't kind of meet that that very very strict criteria of you know having moments of levity uh, no. sprinkled throughout the film in order to keep the viewer engaged. It's um, quite frankly, it's a mess. Um, yeah. And I don't know about you, but it's uh, not only the wrong box, but the wrong movie for uh, Michael Caine to be making off the back of Elfie. A very strange choice. Like I, I, it's so strange that I went back and I just kind of looked at the timeline of this because you know part of this whole kind of exploration of Kane is how does he manage to make you know these huge either commercially successful even in the case of Alfie if it's if it's just an awful horrible film but it's hugely successful and it, it sets him up and then goes and <laughs> like this is the first now uh, this is the first real Troy McClure moment you know. The, fan, the, the contabulous fab traption of Dr. Horatio Huffnigel has just landed with the wrong box. So, like, I went back and looked at the timeline just to see what was the thinking here. So, the wrong box was filmed in September 1965, okay? That was just after the Ipcris file would have come out just a little bit earlier in June 1965. Um, it came out in May 1966. Alfie would have come out in March 1966, having been filmed kind of in between Ipcris coming out and Kane doing the wrong box. He filmed it in June 65. So basically what we're saying is that Alfie wasn't big at all, right? He wasn't, when he was when he, when he committed to doing the wrong box and went working on the wrong box, Alfie still wasn't big. But the Ipcris file was, had come out, right? So why, did, why, why would he have said yes to this rubbish? Um, even though Alfie wasn't huge, I can only hope, and I don't know, what, what, what do you think? Do you think he would have done this like if Alfie had already been huge? I, to be honest with you, um, without kind of spoiling upcoming episodes, how, all you need to do is have one quick look at his filmography and kind of to discern that he doesn't really seem to put an awful lot of thought into the movies that he that he picks um, at the best mm. of times. So I, I think it, it was, this this is so early on in his career. You could be forgiven for thinking, right? I need to take every role I can get because I may never work again. I'm in my thirties. I'm mm. a late bloom, a late bloomer, as it were. Uh, so you could be forgiven for that, but I mean. He put this down to, again, choosing a film based on the pedigree of the people involved, which is not the best approach to take when you're picking a movie. Some people might go so far as reading the script to find out if it's any good. <laughs> you don't think you read the script? I don't think he read the script at all, no. I think he saw Brian Forbes' name attached, was looking at Whistle Down the Wind, uh, uh, was looking at uh, John Mills and Ralph Richardson, I think, you know, like uh, old English uh, movie royalty. This is a good opportunity for my name to appear on the marking next to them. And uh, comedy. I've not done one of an out and out comedy yet. It's going to be a good chance for me to exercise my my muscles. Unfortunately, mm. I to be honest with you, I don't think he has those muscles. He certainly doesn't have those muscles now. Um, it's a very weak performance by him in a role that's not suited to his mm. range. 
Yeah. He is, I mean, the character, we'll go into the plot, but the, the character that he plays here is essentially a kind of a, a milksop, a kind of a, you know, a very, uh, I suppose, a very weak kind of wishy-washy character who doesn't really have an awful lot to do or a lot to say is. Um, yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he's, he's part of an ensemble cast. Like, I mean, you mentioned Mills and Richardson there, obviously being the kind of the main men. You also have, you know, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. It's their first movie. Um, you have you have Tony Hancock turns up, um, and you various other kind of familiar faces from British comedy films of the time. In a way, kind of yeah, it's, a, it's, it's it, like this is fucking cinema through the sixties and seventies is littered with with fucking ensemble mm. attempts like this to to you know you get enough people who you think are funny onto the screen, you think that's automatically going to make the comedy happen, and time after time it doesn't work. You know, just because you have funny people, the things they have to say have to be funny as well. It's not just, you know, their funny bones are going to somehow fucking make, you know, simmer in the stock of your shit stew and still come out, you know, tasting <laughs> good at the end of it. This is like the, I mean, um, this, this, this is kind of like, you know, this is kind of like the, you know, the curse of the super group, you know, you know, you get, you oh, get all these things. Yeah, this yeah. is the air supply of 60s. Oh, this is free. This is free base. This is free yeah. base. This is uh, fucking just, you know. All good component parts of the 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 original uh, you know groups that they were in, and then all of a sudden you add them together. It's like no, nobody needs four bass players in a group. That's no, absolutely not. And this is this is this is kind of really what what unfolds. Um, it's not good. It's not good. I'm going to run through the plot. Unless you have anything else, we'll just get into the plot. And I'm going to apologize in advance. I mean, we're we're we're. I started kind of jotting this out, okay, and we've already obviously we've done the Ipcris file which was quite complex to explain. And then we got into this ridiculous farce. Um, so I'm going to try and get through this as quick as I can, but this is, this is, this is plotsy as any Harry Palmer, right? But anyway, let's go. So the wrong box. Um, the whole premise of the thing is a, a tontine. Tontine has been organized for 20 young rich boys um, whose families put in a thousand pounds. So a tontine meaning that the last surviving member of this group gets all the loot, right? So at the very beginning of the movie, we see a succession of ludicrous deaths. So the ones that stuck out to me was a guy uh, supervising a duel, getting shot by both duelists. That jumps to mind. Leonard Rossiter played him. Actually, Nicholas Parsons pops up as well. He's another one who, who gets it pretty early on. Um, Jeremy Lloyd, uh, who would have written Allo Allo and Are You Being Served afterwards, gets blown to bits by his own cannon at the Battle of Balaclava. I might come back to that one actually later on, but... So it boils down in the end to two brothers, Masterson Finsbury, who's played by John Mills, and Joseph Finsbury, who's played by Ralph Richardson, who was a great English actor of the year. I would remember him from the old epic, The Four Feathers, so I remember him. Um, Kane, he plays Mills' medical student grandson, Michael Finsbury, as Stephen has said. He's just a complete sop. He's kind of useless, really. And Joseph has two grandsons who are played by Peter Cook. And Dudley Moore, and this is their first movie appearance. There's also Cousin Julia, who lives in Joseph's house. She's played by Nanette Newman, um, who's the woman from the Fairy Liquid advert, basically, for, for people of a certain age, remember. Um, and Kane, of course, has a thing for her, even though they're cousins. Um, now, with the Tontine almost concluded, we've got two guys left, and Masterman now apparently dying. Uh, Joseph gets a telegram summoning him back from his holidays in Bournemouth. They live a couple of doors down from each other, but they haven't spoken in years. So Joseph is on the train back with the grandsons. He manages to escape them and gets mixed up with someone called the Bournemouth Strangler, who ends up getting his coat. There's a train crash. The Strangler dies, but because he's wearing Joseph's coat and he's mangled, the grandsons think it's their grandfather's after dying. So they hide the body in the woods nearby with plans to post it to London. 
who knows why. Uh, and they're going to get a bogus death cert from a dodgy doctor called Dr. Pratt. Now, at this point, they make a, a joke about backstreet abortions because Dudley Moore in this is a bit of a Mr. Loverman. Uh, in this movie uh, so therefore he knows Dr. Pratt from previous and presumably because he needed him to get him to perform a hilarious abortion at some stage that's how he knows him um, meanwhile Joseph himself has wandered off hitches a lift to London uh, back in London Kane gets a telegram telling him to expect a statue in a box um, Cook arrives at Kane's house uh, to see uh the dying man, Masterman, and decides to hide his grandfather's body long enough for Masterman to die, and therefore then they can claim the tontine. Dudley Moore is left in charge of posting the body, but of course it happens to get mixed up with the box containing the statue that's going to Kane's house, hence the wrong box. So the body ends up at Masterman's house, and this statue ends up at Peter Cook's house. So Joseph arrives at his brother Masterman's house. Masterman tries to kill him a couple of times, fails, um, Cook arrives home just in time to see the box that he assumes has the body in it uh, being delivered of his grandfather. And he heads off then to Dr. Pratt's house, who's played by Peter Sellers, to get a fake death cert. In the meantime, Kane is helping move the box into Joseph's house where cousin Julia is swooning about. Turns out that she's an orphan whose father, who's a missionary, was eaten by cannibals. So some casual colonial racism sprinkled in there. Uh, so suddenly they're not cousins, so they're free to, you know, whatever, ogle each other's ankles or whatever. Um, Michael gets home. Okay, so we're in the editing suite, also known as my brother's kitchen, and we're getting really, really bored listening to this plot. So in short, look, the film is total pants. You don't need to know any more of the plot to get stuck into the rest of this conversation. So what we're going to do, we're just going to skip ahead to the bit where I say, ta-da, and that's the wrong box. Ta-da! So again, to be fair to this movie, it's very it's very hard when you're um, kind of forensically describing what happened in, in a movie, especially a comedy, uh, and make it sound like it's not funny. But don't worry, it's not funny at all. So, you know, hearing yeah. it kind of uh, play it back to you like this doesn't in any way make it less inter- uh, less entertaining because it's as entertaining as the description makes it out. It's yeah. muck. It is muck. It and we is start, muck. Let's start, we'll, we'll get through this fucking turd fest fairly quickly here now. We'll just fucking... <laughs> Like the like, like a teenager afraid their 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 parents about to come home, we'd kind of knock this one out as quickly as possible. Uh, so, <laughs> so the opening sequence uh, is lets you know that you're really in for a roller coaster of um, terribly directed and edited whimsy. This whole kind of you know, you would have thought a prime opportunity for a bit of slapstick. All the 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 original members and descendants of the of members of the Tontine are killed off in various hilarious ways, uh, as Michael has said. And just the timing is dreadful. The acting is awful. And the way that it's cut is awful. Mm-hmm. Brian Forbes has a tin ear for comedy. Uh, long-standing uh, issue I have is with directors that kind of flow from genre to genre. I think they can just dip their toe into something like comedy or horror as well. It's another one. I just think that it's it's easy. You just have to, you just have to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. get in there, film what's on the script. And, and that's, it's as simple as that. It's not it, comedy is one of the hardest genres to get right. And yeah. if you look at it, I, I maintain some of the best directors in the world, all, they at least have one good comedy. Under them, but that's a mark of, of an extra director is that if they can, if they can do comedies and they can do other genres, that's, you know, that's what makes them, you know, at the top of their game. But Brian Forbes is not at the top of his game. I don't think he was ever at the top of his game. He's a fucking, no. he may have he got lucky with a couple of good kind of scripts um, through his life. Like Stefford Wives is not funny. It was. It was. No. It's not a good movie. I think it's no. more. I think it's more the plot or the the, the notion of a stepward wife is entered into the lexicon. 
exactly exactly it's got the Alfie effect it's just kind of because of the name and the, the kind of the character and as you said the phrase but he's just dire he's just poor he's just poor sorry carry on uh, and if yeah, I mean, then you start to limp through the film, and uh, Dudley Moore and uh, Peter Cooker. Like, I have a lot of time for the sketches that they did, but I two things I could never understand. If you start, if you start today as young people, millennials, or Generation Z, or A one, or whatever the fuck they're called these days, and show them a picture of Dudley, Dudley Moore, and said this man was a sex symbol. He made a number of very successful sex comedies in the late seventies and eighties. They think that you were on drugs. Yeah, probably. And they, this this is guy that's playing it. I don't know who decided. That, you know what? He, he's short. He looks like he should be on a quest to take a ring to a volcano. You know this. I again. They were never the built. They were, they were never built for films. Like I mean, well, Dudley Moore yeah. did his thing. Peter Cook was never built for films. The whole, the, no. like the whole, the, 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 even though films are bigger on, on the screen is bigger. The actual medium is smaller for a guy like him. And and I mean, you can see, like, I'm a big. Peter Cook fan, I just he just makes me laugh, right? But all his movies, you just feel like he's been restricted. I mean, this he's just playing it completely for laughs. He's got the great accent, and he's just but everything is over the top. It's too over the top. Should even Peter Cook, uh, the, the one vehicle that they had was uh, the two of them was a bedazzled. That even that was the next car, yeah, next one. an awful car crash of a movie as well. You know, I, I just yeah, Peter Cook. Like I wouldn't be as big a fan of him as you, but again, he never really made the the transition from from. No. From TV to to, to movies, uh, the role is so one note. All he does is sneer throughout the movie. There's no kind of nuance. I'd say no chance to. He doesn't get the same uh, latitude that someone like Peter Sellers got in the movie. And the the only funny, in my opinion, the only funny piece of the movie is when Peter Cook goes to visit Doctor Pratt, played by Peter Sellers, and Peter Sellers yeah. just blows everyone out off the screen in terms of he knows he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly how to be funny on screen. He takes whatever was on 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 the page, which was alcoholic doctor washed up living with a load of cats and he just just by sheer presence like you say he just knows he just knows how to be funny on screen i mean you know he at one stage he signs the death cert and he uses he picks up the cat and he uses him to to dry the ink on the page and that five seconds was the funniest five seconds in the whole film by a country mile and it just like in a, in a way having sellers in it i presume was a huge selling point in the 60s but it actually it actually amplifies how bad the rest of the movie is. Yes. You, yeah, see, yeah. you see someone who knows what they're doing doing it and then you look at the rest and go, lad, you're you're awful. I like sellers there was one particular line that just cracked me up. It was the way that he said the line, I was not I was not always as you see me now and uh, it's just a bit. Yeah. But that, that's like five seconds in a two and a half hour movie or one hour and 40 minutes. Sorry, I always go for these films feel like two hours, but it's, yeah, it's only an hour and 40, 40 minutes. But <laughs> yeah. Jesus God, time goes backwards in this. This is some sort of fucking quantum realm. You just kind of go, what is this? Constantly watching the Is it over yet? Is it over yet? No, no, there's somehow more time than there was the last time I looked at my watch. Yeah, he's, 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 um, he's way out in his own. Kane, for me, to get to get to the nub of Kane's performance, right? Um, he's got the posh accent again. But he's far too timid for my liking. And you know what? I'm cutting him all sorts of slack in this. I'm watching this movie going, he's not a starring role. It's an ensemble piece. He's 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 restricted within that within that role. But it's really poor. Do you know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of Bromhead from Zulu post Rourke's Drift. Like the PTSD is kicked in and he's just completely sucked dry of any sort of life. He's just he's living from moment to moment. 
I would say probably like Bromhead, only would what I'd imagine the opium addiction and the sense of alcoholism <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I presume, like like we said at the top, I'm assuming he did this movie because he was good mates with Brian Forbes and he saw the cast and went, wow. Like, I mean, the last time he was on film with with John Mills, he actually didn't make it onto film because he was he was cast in a, in a bit part uh, with Mills in a, in a film some years previously. But Mills actually had him fired from the set for being too tall. The first scene they had to do together, um, John Mills came away and said, sorry, I, I can't act while looking up. Now, he insisted Kane got paid in full, but they, he got rid of him. Now, they became friends afterwards. But, um, you know, I suppose he probably looked at the list here and went, yeah, like you, like, like you said, yeah, I, I, I'll do that. But, you know, I'm cutting him all sorts of slack and I cannot get away from the fact that it's just a really poor performance from him. Yeah, I didn't realise that John Mills was part Spaniel. You know, dogs can't look up now. They can John Mills. <laughs> Apparently so. I'm or is it like one of those emperor? Is it like an emperor penguin in the Faroe Islands? Does he look? Does he fall over when he looks <laughs> up to just too far? It's a it's a cane anecdote. So I mean, you can you can take it whatever yeah. way you want. As you say, it's an ensemble piece. I said Peter Cook uh, is on screen more than Michael Caine is for this one. But like putting aside that Nanette Newman is, I think at the time was Brian Forbes' uh, wife. Do you notice this? Is this it's just seemed to be completely? It was just yeah, it was it was really off putting. And then there's this kind of bizarre slow motion wooing scene in the movie. Uh, Michael Caine's character is helping move the wrong box, uh, the eponymous a wrong box down the stairs. She catches a glimpse of his for of his uh, bare uh, bicep, and I said yes. bicep. I've seen spaghetti with more uh, protein on it. Uh, <laughs> Gets so aroused by this that she flees. Uh, Michael Caine's character, seeing seeing his chance, uh, runs up the stairs in slow motion to the to uh, uh, to her. Um, and there's a lot of very kind of broad, very broad acting here now. And this one scene as they're getting closer and closer to each other, they cut in on him, and he's supposed to look as if he's been smitten by Cupid's arrow or whatever. He looks like he's going to kill her. He looks yeah. I, like the next natural yeah. progression is he's going to start strangling her. And then the inevitable, again, era-appropriate docking sequence uh, where they kiss. <laughs> this this vacuum seal is far over each mouth in order to make sure that the you know like the the, the passengers from you know the, the 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 pod can you know get into the space station. Yeah, it's, it's it's awful, it's awful, and it's so sixties. And you know, I was trying to figure out why is this? Why what what? When I say it's so 60s, the music was bad. The slow motion bit was bad. The title cards. Why did they use title cards? So they use these these kind of silent uh, silent movie title cards to introduce different parts yeah. of the film. But it's like they forgot about it as a conceit after the first 20 minutes. And then they remembered it and throw in like three within the space of five minutes of the, towards the end of the movie. That's right. Uh, the fuck, the fucking butler. Jesus oh. Christ. Oh. Like if there was, if there was a, even if there was a, a, a scintilla of humor in this, he saw it out like a fucking humor vampire he's the line delivery was so slow and it was like a waiting for him to there was an like the any good writer would go listen what you're doing can you bring it down by a hundred percent and when you get to zero can you bring that down by another 50 percent there in fact <laughs> what you could do is is leave the set i think that's going to really improve your performance we're going to recast this role entirely it was fucking diabolical the butler is played by Wilfred Lawson, who um, Kane speaks about a little bit in one of his books. He says, you know, that uh, Wilfred Lawson was getting on in years. Now, getting on in years, by the way, I, I looked him up. 
I mean, the guy was, I think he might have been in his 70s, late 60s or something. But um, Forbes had set up some shots with, with Lawson so that Kane would move towards him and then you would just see them kind of from chest height up. So underneath the camera, um, Kane was kind of had his hand on his arm moving Wilford into position. I think Wilford, um, his his career was kind of affected a bit by his 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 affection for the booze. So Kane, Kane recalled afterwards like that, you know, sometime probably before the wrong box, he had run into Wilfred Lawson in a club in London. He he was there with a script like at the bar, uh, re, seemed to be learning lines. And Kane went over and kind of engaged in a bit of chat and said, uh, when are you opening, you know? And he said, he said eight o'clock tonight. So uh, it was a bit, it was all a bit it was all a bit panicky from Wilfred's side of things. It was actually his last role before he passed away. He died of a heart attack. But it, it, he is like, and he's he's playing. He's meant to be playing a decrepit butler, and he's really meant to be a springboard for a lot of the humor in this. But I mean, he's as much a springboard now as a plank is. It just does not bounce. Does not bounce. The lines do not bounce. No, no. The it's like he absorbs the lines and then takes about five minutes to respond by which stage you're, you're kind of egging him on you're, you're really hoping that he finishes the sentence before dying on screen in front of you yeah there is a bit of a sense of that the reviews were actually quite i looked up the reviews they were quite mixed i mean it kind of gets a pass as a lively romp right um according to kane it didn't go well in britain he reckons because they didn't see themselves sort of uh, you know as sort of pent up stiff upper lip kind of sexually regressive types um which they're not, he said. So I kind of translate that that Kane wasn't a big fan, but he doesn't really, he doesn't say much. He's never said much about the wrong box, I don't think. It'd be easy just to say that this movie is dog shit and move on for that, but I think it's just to understand why it's dog shit. It's dog shit because the director doesn't understand comedy. The script isn't funny. Um, the ensemble cast isn't great. You've got people, you know, not acting as an ensemble. Um, I was going to say Peter Sellers gives the best performance of the screen, but that's five minutes in there and he's you know more or less on you know on the screen by himself during during that time um kane is miscast kane isn't funny um he doesn't like i think at one stage in this he's, he's required to fall over in a in a in a funny fashion and he doesn't even manage to do that he's just it's not a it's not a bone in his body essentially that he has it's not it's not, not, not yet anyway you can reach for not 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 yet and obviously you know it's early days but i mean certainly at this stage um, you'd imagine this may have put him off making comedies for a while Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I, 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 you would imagine it did. I don't know. I, you don't know. I mean, God knows what was going through his mind at this stage. Probably time to move on from the wrong box, I think. But before we do, I'll just tell you one yarn before uh, before I forget. Do, uh, yarn me up. Yarn me up. Good story, Daddy. Yeah, <laughs> I will. I'll do my best. Um, mentioned it at the top there that uh, Jeremy Lloyd, who, who would have written Hello, Hello, and are you being served? And at the time, actually, uh, I think around this time, Rowan and Martin would have brought him in to write for the Laughing in America. Um, interesting good, fella. Good. Was... I'm, glad you, I, I'm glad you got that reference in there. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any millennials listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay for the Rowan and Martin anyway, Laughing references, you know, lads. And back, back to the Battle of Balaclava. Um, <laughs> so he was. So he was. Um, yeah, so he's he plays one of the people uh, killed before his time, who was part of the Tantine. He was killed at the Battle of Balaclava by some cannon shot from his own side. But anyway, so this scene is in the film, like he comes out the front and the cannon explodes, and you see him fall forward. But apparently, apparently, the, after the loud explosion, according to his own autobiography, he was actually engulfed in flames from his waist up. He got sixty-two pieces of shrapnel into the back of his head and into his kind of lower left jaw. He was Jesus out of action Christ. for a year. 
he was only watching for a year, and they left the they left the scene in the film. Um, so like, Jesus Christ, I was like, that's and I'm literally I went looking around just to see because I was curious to see what Peter Cook or Dudley Moore thought of this film or anybody. No one thought anything of it. Like they literally didn't have a thought about it, uh, apart from apart from Jeremy could Lloyd. You, could you imagine this near death experience? Could you imagine being out of out of action professionally for a year because of a five second scene you shot for a film like The Wrong Box? It's if it's true if it's a true story. I mean, I mean, Jeremy Lloyd put it in his autobiography. I mean, it's an it's unbelievable. I mean, he went off, uh, he went off to America after that. He was actually he was actually invited to Sharon Tate's house the day that Sharon Tate was butchered uh, by the Manson family. And he didn't. He, he he didn't fetch up, and then he came back to America or came back to the UK, and obviously wrote all those, all those various different, all those various different comedies that he became famous for. Um, but I mean, you know, that was that was that was you know where his acting career was at. Sixty-two pieces of shrapnel in the back of the head out of the wrong box. We are going to give a mark out of Kane for every film, and again, please, just please, let's just, let's just wheel wheel this fucking film into the <laughs> dignitas clinic part of this fucking. Podcast because I think we've discussed this film more than it than yeah, any I think anybody else in the entire world has ever, ever discussed been. the wrong box to this so extent. I just want to inject the poison into the into into its veins and hold its hand gently, uh, <laughs> pretending that I'm invested while not thinking about the large you know Toblerone I'm going to get duty free on the way home. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're going to gently euthanize this discussion now. So when we're giving the marks, just to explain to people again, if you're new, if you're new to the podcast at all, I, and why you jumped in for the wrong box, I do not know. But uh, we're not marking the film as such. We're marking Kane's performance. But I tell you, I, I, I'll go first on this one this time. I really have tried to be sympathetic to him on this, but I cannot. I'm giving him three. Oh, I'm, I'm going to uh, give him a number two. Really? Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's a very low point, and it's incredible. It's incredible, and when you think what he's coming off, the, what people are watching him on screen, and he's coming off the back of his performance in Elfie, his performance in Ipcris, for people to see the wrong box, and the next film up, the next film up is Gambit. So he's going, and this is like kind of the this is the jump now because he's going from sort of a kind of a British ensemble role, right? This is his first Gambit is his first show as a Hollywood leading man. I mean the the jump from one to the other is just it's unbelievable. Yeah, you're right. It's unbelievable that uh, I I can only imagine that whenever he got the role offer for uh, Gambit, they hadn't seen the wrong box. And I suppose he probably he probably did benefit from the you know the tight time frame here. It's not like the things are now where all you have to do is do a quick internet search and see any movie that you want. I mean, back then they would have probably just seen the movies that he'd been, you know, lauded for or Zulu or Icarus or, or, or yeah. Alfie even. And they would, you know, the wrong box may not have been in the local movie theater where the producers were looking to cast him for Gambit or anything like that. So nobody would have seen this fucking movie um, when they were casting for uh, But yeah, and I'm, again, this has been a, you know, a learning experience for, for, for us all. I'd never, I would, ne- had I not done this podcast, I would never have watched the wrong box. So I'll say, you know, it wasn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but it certainly broadened my, my horizons. You're not inclined to quit. No, no, no. I mean, you don't fall at the first hurdle. There's, I'm sure there's many other hurdles along the way. You know, Princess Diana <laughs> gave up after that first line, landmine she cleared herself, or the first man, <laughs> uh, gentleman with A's that she touched. She wouldn't. Have, she wouldn't basically have saved all those people. 
So you know, I I know in a way I do see myself as our as the podcast's uh, princess of hearts. So yes, you certainly are the people's princess. All right, that's for sure. Like you know, we won't obviously we'll talk about this in much more um, detail as time you know in the next episode. But uh, yeah, like Shirley McLean would have had the choice. It's it's if Chris gets him the gig in in Gambit, it's, it's it's not the wrong, the wrong box gets you no gig. The wrong box no. gets your career put in a box. Yes, especially if you're Wilfred Lawson. And on that bombshell, uh, we're going to leave it. Come back next time for Gambit. Go find it. It's online. It's easy to find. Go watch it. Um, Come back. We're going to discuss it next time around. Stephen, thank you. Thank you, Michael. And as usual, if you have any questions to ask us again, um, preferably about the, 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 the movie itself rather than, you know, personal questions, because again, most of those have been hurtful so far. So if you can keep it on topic, any questions you'd like to ask us about Gambit, uh, Hit us up. Ugh, I threw up in my mouth there. Hit us up on Twitter, on uh, at Mala News or at Michael uh, Michael Foley or whatever it is your Twitter handle is, or at Mark of Kane to, as usual, fuck you, Mark of Kane one. We're going to find you, people. What are you waiting for? Come on! Come on! What are you waiting for? Come on! Come on! Come on.